Hello and welcome to Lodcast. This episode is slightly different. We speak with Milan Gandhi, an Australian lawyer, innovation ambassador, a prize-winning law student, and founder of one of Australia's leading legal not-for-profits, The Legal Forecast. Given Millen's credentials and keen focus on law students and early career professionals, we thought we would focus this episode on helping people who are just starting out their journey in legal practice. And to help them, we undertook a myth-busting exercise on some of the more common pieces of advice you might hear around the courtyards of law schools and the corridors of law firms. It's honest and unvarnished, but we do hope you enjoy it. Here's Millen. of this is to go through some key pieces of advice that people might receive and we can do a bit of a myth-busting exercise based on your experience um, as a law student of the year and as now a junior lawyer at a prestigious law firm and a little bit about what I learned yeah. um, at, at a national law firm as well. I love myth-busting yeah, and okay. I love doing it with you, Mark. Okay. So in front of you is a piece of paper and I've written out some ones which we might consider. You haven't seen all of these, so we're just going to see how we go. Yeah, fantastic. The first one, we, we have talked about it before. And it's kind of the idea of fake it till you make it. And I think the second one, imposter syndrome, is kind of related, I would say. They're pretty similar. So if we take the first one, fake it till you make it. I think, so So generally I would say, like a lot of lawyers, quite cynical sometimes for kind of self-help and affirmation. Um, what I think I like about this one is people think, particularly law students, feel they need to be perfect the first time they do something. And whereas in reality, in the world of business and commerce and law, it's unrealistic to expect everything you say to be perfect the first time. So there is an element of that. You just need to have a little bit of confidence. Perhaps it's better to couch it in the terms of it's okay to fail. But what's your take on fake it till you make it? I hate fake it till you make it. Okay. So I have a real hot take on this. Okay, great. And and that's that's because the, the message shouldn't be... You know, because because you're imperfect, you need to fake something. I mean, that's that's you know BS. And if I can say that on yeah, the show, you certainly can. Um, but it, what the message should be is: yes, of course you're imperfect. Of course you've got this this massive road ahead of you, and you've just got to take it one step at a time. And you're going to get knocked down, and you're going to get back up again. And that's going to be a part of the journey. And that kind of rise and fall is something that you should expect and, and embrace to some extent. I, I certainly don't believe that, that anyone listening to this needs to fake anything. Right. Um, it, it's completely normal that you've got stuff to learn and it's completely normal that, you know, that, that, that you're not going to be perfect at everything the first time you attempt it. And I know that sounds, you know, obvious, but, but I also appreciate the kinds of personalities that are, that are listening to us right now. And I appreciate that I've had this problem too, where I expect to be great at it the first time I try it yeah. because of the nature of, you know, being type A, dare I say. Um, so I get that. But, but what I would say, perhaps the saving grace in this idea of faking it and, until you make it, is that some people probably are great and probably do deserve to have the swagger and confidence that should come with the skill that they have. But I know a lot of people who, notwithstanding the fact that they have the credentials and they, they are actually good at something, still for some reason or another don't believe in themselves. Um, and, and probably the only thing that, that um, the only thing that I take from, the only positive thing that I take from fake it till you make it is maybe sometimes it helps to smile even if you're not happy because sometimes acting as if can mean that you start to feel as if. So maybe the, I, maybe I'm giving too much credit to who, whoever came up with this. Right. But that's the only positive or the saving grace that I see. Otherwise, I don't believe we need to be faking it. I think we just need to be real and confront the fact that we're going to make mistakes. Totally. And there's an element um, 
in relation to being a lawyer and certain legal professional duties and obligations that you should 100% never be faking anything. My God, that is correct. Yeah, I mean, so, you, absolutely. Integrity has to be the foundational pillar of yeah, a career in law. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I don't think life. that's what people mean when they mean fake. They mean to, like, you know, just be a bit more confident. I know. So if you take it at a, like, a, uh, at its what it means in its spirit it's kind of okay but don't take it literally well that's it and and you know good lawyers should probably approach most most yes. blanket statements in that way as we'll but we'll, we'll get to the next one and see how we feel about it so imposter syndrome this is a little bit of a pet hate of mine um particularly uh in the zeitgeist i feel like there's been a bit of a death of experts who want to listen to experts to me imposter syndrome is kind of related like oh no one knows what they're doing so you should feel fine saying it. And I think that's absolutely incorrect. There are people who know exactly what they're talking about um, and we should be respectful of that. Explain uh, that to me. Explain that to me a bit more, Mark. So help me to understand that. So my understanding of imposter syndrome is it's the feeling that you don't belong in a certain circle. Am I wrong in interpreting it that way? No, you, no that's correct, yeah. So, so how does like that... You shouldn't be... Let's, let's say you're a junior lawyer yeah. and you have to um, stand up and give a presentation about a recent change to mm. um, privacy legislation. Random example. Yeah. Um, if, let's say you've done no research and one of your mates says, that's all right, imposter syndrome. Like, just get up there. No one knows what they're talking about. That's an incorrect view. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You should do your work. You should absolutely know what you're talking about. Where it becomes... I mean, maybe this is... Because we're analysing things, we're going to take things to the logical extreme. Mm. But, but what I don't like about imposter syndrome is that people seem to have used it quite a lot to justify laziness. That's interesting. That's what I don't like about it. This is a really hot take. I thought I'd be the controversial one, Mark. This is. <laughs> What's your take on it? Well, look, I, I see where you're going with that and and I don't entirely disagree. You're, what you're saying that, that there are people who, who, you know, have worked harder and, you know, come to understand an area of knowledge better than you have probably because we can't be experts at everything. That's, that's obviously correct. So I think you're right. I think it's a bit dangerous just to assume that... Um, you know, um, <laughs> at whatever level we're at, we're suddenly experts about everything. And but, but the way I've always um, understood imposter syndrome is, is kind of this feeling that that you're not good enough um, in circumstances where it would be ridiculous that that was the case. You know, so w- what I think of when I think of imposter syndrome is the fear that I had, for example, in answering questions in tutorials. I had this kind of profound fear that I would be found out. You know, and, and then I, I would also, re- I also recall, you know, if I had done the readings, which I rarely did, you know, I would, um, I would then be in class and someone else, some bright, confident person would have their hand up, would be answering a question and I'd be like, damn it, that's what I was going to say, you right. know, and that's how, that's what I recall or that's how I think of, um, imposter yeah. syndrome. And I want to, I'll tell you something funny cause you've raised it. I, I don't, I don't mention it often cause I sound like a tool, but yeah, I was Australian law student of the year and, I, and it was a huge honor and I'm very grateful for that. But even when I won that accolade, I did not necessarily feel that I, I fit into some cool club that yeah, theoretically I mean, exists sure. out there. Sure, sure, sure. So I'm very, I actually, I am much softer on the imposter syndrome one. You know, I was not keen on fake it till you make it, but I was, I'm, I'm more understanding of people who have imposter syndrome. So, okay. Now, the next three you haven't seen before, but I just thought I'd like to do a few more and potentially some which I think are good advice because the idea of this for listeners is to get an idea of what they might um, consider as good advice to help them with their career because we're trying to help them, essentially. Yeah. Now, this isn't necessarily limited to professional judgment, 
but often you'll be asked to, to make a decision about something and it's a big decision and you don't know how you feel about it. It's quite hard to process because there's a number of variables. One of the rules um, that uh, people advocate for and I've certainly used before is, a, is, a, is a called a 10-10-10 rule. Right. And that's the idea. If you make this decision, let's say you choose a spoon over a knife, how do you feel about that in 10 minutes' time, in 10 months' time, and then in 10 years' time? Now, the analogy I use is very silly, but <laughs> the idea of having a um, framework for making big decisions, I think it's an interesting one. But now, have you heard of that before? So, no, and I, let me understand it. And maybe it's come up and I just don't remember. I'm sure someone's listening who has told me about this before and they're thinking this guy never listens to me. But uh, so the way I understand it is your perspective, you're looking into the f- a hypothetical future and you're, you're, you're doing a thought exercise about how would I feel about this in 10 minutes? How would I feel about this in 10 hours? How would I feel about this in 10 years? It's not that you wait 10 years before you decide. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. All right. All right. Absolutely. So the example might be, let's continue to ground it in the legal world. It might be that... Um, you need to provide some advice to a senior partner and you might say, I'm, I'm just going to copy and paste some research from LexisNexis. Oh, good God. And in 10 minutes' time, that might be great because you get out of the office and you're at the beach. But in 10 months' time, does that look as good? And in 10 years' time, does that look as good? That's kind of what I'm thinking. I Look, I, I think that's interesting. How, how do you, how do you suspect? I see what you mean because there's a difference between how it might help you in the, you know, what the pros and cons are in the immediate term versus the medium Especially and the long term. Especially short, medium, long term. Yeah. yeah. Look, I don't think that's unhelpful at all. I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer that um, you've got to find ways to break up your, your thinking pattern. You can't just assume that the, that the status quo... You know, failing to, to, to stop in the middle of the street and reflect on what you're thinking is going to get you to, to where you want to go. And so I think, I think any tool that helps you to do a bit of critical thinking that you might not otherwise do is a useful one. And I guarantee you, people who have gotten into all of these horrible ethical scandals where, you know, they've, they've shifted a bit of money from the trust account and oh, it hasn't felt that bad at the, at the exact moment they're doing it, you know, who, who have then gone and then incurred some gambling debt and then needed to steal a bit more and so forth. I guarantee you none of them sat down and did a 10-10-10 analysis <laughs> yeah. of any of those decisions. So I can absolutely see the logic in that. Okay. All right. Um, two more, I think, before we, we move on because mm-hmm. this might get boring for some people. No, no, I'm enjoying The idea this. of... Um, owning your mistakes as a piece of advice to, to, to junior, early stage professional lawyers, I think it's a really important one. Um, and I think it's one, because you will make mistakes, like that may be a spoiler alert for some people, but you will. Um, spoiler alert. Particularly as a junior lawyer, when you're often given lots of work and you don't understand how to prioritise yet, you don't understand um, often the complexities of commercial advice. So you will make mistakes, and I think one of the worst things you can do is try and cover up or avoid it. Yeah, and there's that. There's that. Um, I was about to say funny story, and it depend depending on your sense of humour and if it's particularly morbid, it is a funny story. But apparently, there was some, you know, um, and I'm tempted to say poor individual, maybe foolish individual would be fairer. Who hid all of these files in the roof of the law firm? Have you heard that story? No. So apparently, you know, they it just got overwhelming. All of these files that they were given, and we could have a whole other discussion about culture and leadership because you know this person was probably partly a victim in all this. But then, you know, their way of dealing with it was simply to to hide all of these files and their inability to attend to them. We're talking about physical, physically matter files. That's right, in the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> so the ultimate idea of not owning your mistakes and and well, hiding them in the ceiling. Um, and I, 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 that always makes me stop and think. It's a, it's a very, you know, jarring tale if you're, if you're starting out in the law um, because it presents a, 
<laughs> presents a, a kind of level of stress that you imagine this person was under that, that's obviously not um, very pleasant to think about. But, but all of that aside, I, I definitely believe it's important to own your mistakes, particularly in the legal profession. I, I'm lucky, though, to work with people who, who are equally as authentic um, as I have learned to be around this idea of admitting failure and admitting your mistakes. And, and I've had mentors who have basically come to me and, and, and said, look, almost nothing in litigation is reversible other than something that's unethical. So if, 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 if ultimately, you know, you've got your feet firmly planted on the ground in terms of um, knowing what is right and wrong from an ethical perspective, many of the other makes pardon me, many of the other mistakes that you could make, like failing to hand in a list of documents with everything else you needed to submit on that date or not meeting a deadline of some kind or, you know, accidentally disclosing something that seems to be a, a you know, um, a smoking gun for the other side or whatever it may be. Um, ultimately, <laughs> these things can be fixed. And the best way to approach them is as soon as possible. Uh, you know, before before the, the mistake balloons or, or becomes bigger than it needs to be because of your, you know, because of an instinct that I hope nobody has to, to hide that. And I was told, I was told by serious senior people who've just, you know, been through, you know, a huge amount of litigation, um, you know, in senior positions that I should come forward and, and just be as honest as possible about things. Um, and there are probably two dimensions to that. I, I think, you know, going back to this idea that lawyers and, and law students, etc. Some of them are cut from this type A cloth that we keep referring to. Uh, and, and therefore, it's, it's just difficult from, an, from like a, a level of ego or, or, or even not ego, but just a level of wanting to impress people in this super high pressure environment yeah. to just come forward and admit your mistake. Um, what I would say to you is, yeah, I get that. In fact, I have a personal anecdote. Do you, okay. want, do you want me to share a mistake that I, mean, I make? If you feel comfortable with yeah, yeah. I mean, no one knows about it yet, and it's going to cause, you know, trigger all these bankruptcies. But may as well. no, I'm joking. It's not. It's nothing. Nothing serious. So, I mean, well, it didn't end up being serious because I, I brought to the attention of, of um, a partner. So I was very lucky to work for a particular partner um, who is is firm, um, and and you know, some people might think of him as scary, and I can understand that. But when you get to know him, he's actually um, a super supportive individual, and and he is someone who. I hold very close in terms of my circle of mentors. So, but when I first started working for him, because of you know my own things in my own head, and, and it's probably natural for most junior lawyers starting in a new team, I was a little bit afraid of him, right? And um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring a problem to this particular individual. So, um, he had entrusted me with with drafting pleadings for for a very small mags court matter, which is kind of very unique at the place that I work. Because usually that sort of stuff would be briefed out to to embarrassing in terms of actually drawing up pleadings. I should say that mags court is magistrates court. Sorry, mate. I presume yeah. most people would know that, but just in case. yeah, the, the 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 arbitral tribunal of the Maggie Noodles. Come <laughs> no, but yeah, the the magistrates court. Um, so you're getting a bit of Queensland in me now because yeah. I'm going. I'm just worried to, our London listeners might. Yeah, our sophisticates they won't get what I'm saying. Um, anyway, so I was immediately nervous about this task because it was a high mountain to climb. But I was also excited because I was like, "Yeah, he's trusting me to do this, and I appreciate that this is not normal, probably, or this is not the average task that you'd get in a grad program." So I went ahead and I and I drew up these pleadings, and I, I worked really hard, and I thought I'd read everything. Um, that I needed to read and, and I thought I'd sort all the, the instructions that I needed to seek. And on the morning of the day that we were to file the, the pleadings, or in fact, actually, no, let, let, me be as, let me be as accurate as possible. On the evening before the morning that we were to file the pleadings, I went through them 
and for some reason or another had this light bulb moment that what I had consistently described as one contract was in fact two contracts. And it changed everything. It changed like the, you know, changed all kinds of things, you know, about this pleading. And I can't remember exactly what, but just trust me. So I I was faced with this almost comical situation, sitting there having realized my mistake, sitting as I am now, not that anyone can see me who's listening to this with with my, you know, fingers firmly pressed up against my forehead. You look deeply concerned. Deeply, thank you. With deep concern. I, I'm just staring at my computer and then staring at his office door. Staring at my computer and then staring at his office door. And and it felt like ripping off a bandage. You just had to do. It. I just knew I had to do it. I knew I just had to walk in there. Yeah. And I and I, I don't know. If, and ho- hopefully he doesn't put this story together and listen to this because it'll be embarrassing. But anyway. But I think my knees were shaking when I walked in to sit down and just admit this thing. Right. And and it's not. Be- it, it is partly because I. Th- thought of him as scary and and that myth was dispelled ultimately but i think it was also i was just i you know embarrassing i was embarrassed and that's reasonable and if someone brought me that i you know i'm sure i would have been slightly frustrated and the most amazing thing happened he just chuckled at me maybe because he sensed how disturbed i was by all of this and how much of a ordeal it it must have been for me i think you probably noted you were shaking knees and thoughts well probably but he just sort of chuckled and he said that you know it's no issue like um, and he brought another teammate in and he said, you know, um, can you can you help Millen with this and, you know, let's work it out. And, and that's that's exactly what we did and we got it done and it was an issue. Uh, and I've, I've since that moment, and that, that that's a really clear one in my mind because I was probably a bit less experienced, so it, it just sticks out more than... Mm-hmm. But I've, I've made, um, you know, mistakes like that uh, in other contexts. And that doesn't mean I'm a bad lawyer. I mean, you know, not to toot my own horn, I, I you know, consistently... I think that I'm. I think that I'm a pretty good one, and I hope a lot of people who work with me would agree. But I, you got, you're going to make those mistakes. It's just inevitable. Yep. So you know, um, owning them uh, is the right way to. Well, fix thank it. you for sharing that story. No worries. Um, I have a final build on that. Yeah, go. And I think it's. I mean, it might bleed down into the next topic about tips and tricks. Uh-huh. But I think something that's a helpful uh, perspective shift for junior lawyers is put yourself in the shoes of your instructing solicitor or your your senior associate, your managing associate, your partner, whatever, and think about how they would like this advice to be delivered. Because I think often you don't, and you get given, I need some advice on whether this lease is legal and you run it and you give your advice, and maybe you present them a whole bunch of academic black letter law, when really they just wanted a yes or no answer. Oh, yeah. That's a bit of a trite example, but... Don't get me started. My, a- my build on this is if you put yourself in the position of your senior, you would want them you would want your junior on your mistakes. So you have full visibility of what they're doing and then you can make the decisions. Because if you if you hide stuff from them, that's the worst because then they can't help you rectify it, they can't fix it, they can't change it. That's what I'm saying. Oh, you're absolutely right about this. And and, and I think you've touched on something that's far more profound than than helping people um, break out of you know that 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 uh, legalistic way of drafting that they pick up in in university, which then isn't ultimately effective in communicating to clients. It's it's even more profound uh, than just owning one's mistakes, although that is a, a pretty important thing to do. I think what you what you've touched on this idea of putting yourself in the feet of your your ultimate end user, I guess you could call it, or your ultimate customer, is something that we need so much of. It's not just about you know, navigating a workplace and being a better lawyer. It's also about cultivating a better legal system, one that serves its customers right. more effectively. Um, and I think one of the, the major motivators for starting the legal forecast is the gulf that we perceive between, you know, the way that, that, that legal knowledge and information is delivered 
and, and at the cost that it's delivered, the gulf between those things and, you know, the people that actually need access to their remedies and rights. And, and even that issue is encapsulated in, in what you're saying, namely that somehow, somewhere, we've forgotten to really think about who our end user is, and so we've ended up with, right. you know, a system that can't really serve a huge segment of society. Yeah. So, I mean, I know I've just gone on a massive tangent there, but no, I no, hope... But it's, I mean, it kind of leads into legal design thinking and, and Absolutely. concepts around that, which, you know, we can't talk forever as much as that would well, be. Well, we can. Pleasure. It's up to you. <laughs> um, that idea, and that's something that actually at LED, it's something, and not to plug us, because this is not what this is about, but something that we see... Um, and we've seen ever since we started in 2007 is um, an industry which wasn't really meeting the needs of the end user. That's and right. often for us, that's um, corporates. And you'll, you'll see consistently um, examples of very prestigious uh, law firms giving advice, which is not fit for purpose. It's too much or it's too little, it's gold-plated, it doesn't need to be. Um, and the tech industry, for all its faults, and there's a lot of faults, one thing that I think I had a really good relentless focus on, um, perhaps best epitomised by Apple's relentless focus on the user, is that idea of well, how does this actually get delivered and how would this actually help someone? Yeah, so-called UX design. Yeah. Completely agree. Yeah. Completely agree. Uh, and I think, I think there has been a movement, um, particularly since we started the legal forecast, not because we started it, although I'm sure we've made some sort of contribution to that change, but since that time, there's been a, a rise in the consciousness of lawyers, I think, across the globe to try and to try and better deliver on their clients' expectations, right? Because that's what that's ultimately about. Uh, and, and a word that I hear thrown around in this kind of topic of conversation or this space is empathy, and I kind of like that. Yeah. I like this idea that uh, there is an imperative on us to, to be empathetic because it, it breaks it breaks down the stereotype of a lawyer as being this kind of like you Charles know, Dickens character. That's right, Scroogey a bit. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and you know, it also breaks down the idea that that we've got to be photographic memories and, and remember every corner of every regulation and, and be able to recite it, you know, from memory, which is how what some law schools would have you believe. Actually, no. I think where you'll find a competitive edge, particularly in in you know the commercial space, is being very, um, being extremely um, interested in your client's problem, and being very willing to listen rather than to advise. Uh, you know, listening founds the basis for advice that is actually worthwhile. So I think I think that that's something I've certainly tried to bring to, to anything that I do. Even right now, you know, part of my day job is drafting submissions, something that people who are listening to this podcast who end up in a legal career will do if they're in litigation or whatever it may be. And when, when drafting submissions, I really try and put myself in the shoes of the arbitrator because this, this poor fellow is going to have to go through reams and reams and reams of paper. Hopefully he's reading it electronically. Uh, and he or she, I should say. Well, I'm saying he because uh, he is a he. Sorry, but yeah, he or she, of course. And you want to make that person's job as easy as possible. So, you know, there's a there's a skill in that, and there's a self awareness that that goes with um, that kind of approach to your work. So, everyone benefits from you know considering properly who their end user is. In my yep. view. Okay, so. I'm going to recommend we go, not that we've been on the piece at all, but slightly on the piece. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> on the off country, um, or back country. I think what doesn't happen in legal education, and when you first start in a law firm or a law company 
or in-house, but less so in-house, let's stick with law firms, is, and certainly wasn't taught at university when I was there, um, is law is in a very difficult position because it's a profession and um, profession which has ethical obligations. It's part of the backbone of our constitutional democracies because it upholds the rule of law. But they also have to make money, you know, and and they're a business, which is a position, let's say, doctors in Australia, at least, are paid for by the government. They perform an important function. Lawyers perform an equally important function, or close to, to as important, and yet they're expected to work in the private practice generally. My parents are doctors, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> and, so, and so when you start as a junior lawyer, and I, this is certainly true um, for me, is I didn't really understand how the business side of it worked. It was like, oh, we provide advice, we get paid for it. Um, we have a thing called billable hours, there are targets. But it just struck me when you're talking about empathy and working with clients, there's not a lot of that when you're a junior lawyer because you haven't been trained, or at least maybe it's changing. Maybe you, have a, you probably have a better view on it than I do. But it seems to me that people tell you about the profession of law but not the business of law. I think you're right. And for me, one of the, the big eye-openers was, incidentally, the same partner that I was telling you about earlier, uh, providing a session partly because I, I asked him to, to our graduate cohort, about Legal Business 101. That was so eye-opening you know, my lasting feeling after that session was, well, why didn't I know about this beforehand? This seems so important to, you know, if you are striving for a commercial career in law, it seems so important to progressing in that career. It seems so important to, you know, confidently solving uh, your client's problems, that you understand something about industry, something about business. Why is it not, why is it not taught earlier? Well, the, the fair answer to that question is that law schools cannot be a one-stop shop for absolutely everything that can assist you in your career, right? Um, and, and obviously that's why certain, certain people are advocates for, for dual degrees or for people having you know, experiences that are broader than, than just the tutorial room. But equally, that's, that's the need that the legal forecast has sought to serve uh, in the last few years, particularly through programs like Disrupting Law, which, of course, LED support, um, where we've, we've really rounded up bright students and not just from the law sphere, you know, from, from various disciplines to tackle complex problems um, that they identify, but not just, to, not just to say, look, if we had a trillion dollars, we could solve this. But to actually figure out, well, with the resources available to us, what is the what is the MVP? What is the minimum viable product? What is the the the, the kind of starting place or the business plan? What what would the revenue stream look like? And you know, what would our operating cost be, and so forth. And so we've been very lucky through that process, not only as the organisers of of those events. Um, but, you know, to speak for the broader legal forecast family, also the participants in, in those events and those kinds of events, um, to have experienced that kind of um, thinking and, and to have learned from mentors about um, how to get better at it. But you're absolutely right. It is, it is something that's fundamental, you know, that, that kind of commercial, commercial um, nous. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I, I mean, and how you learn it, I mean, I, w- I would encourage people, I would encourage people to do... Uh, you know, some of the competitions are now on offer. I mean, in the in the early days, disrupting law was almost all you could do. But there are other things like um, the Summer Innovation Program at the University of Sydney. Um, you know, there's obviously the Global Legal Hackathon, which comes from abroad, um, and there's all kinds of hackathon-esque events, which are really about 
bringing people together from across disciplines to tackle a problem that, yes, is relevant to law, but it's not a problem that is answered with, you know, regulations or law itself. It's actually a problem that's answered with a business model. Um, and, and by participating in that kind of thing, I think you, you probably get a head start uh, in terms of developing some of that commercial acumen. But that is not the entire answer. Those events are you know, only one part of it, and it, they're sort of a taste tester. Uh, at McCullough Robertson, I hope you don't mind me spruiking something that, that I think is very relevant. Um, we're developing, or we have developed and launched, a program called MCR Changemakers, where through a selective process, we take a cohort of about 10 lawyers from across the offices in Australia, who are then given literally uh, a program or, or a curriculum that is about putting them in the shoes of business owners. Uh, for two reasons. One, so that their advice can be better because with that knowledge, they hopefully better understand the problems that they are solving. So it's that commercial nous. But two, and I think this is also important, so when they become partners or, or leaders in the firm, they can actually confidently drive the direction of what is a business, right? Because being extremely technically good at your job will get you far. And it, it should be the foundation for you know being a lawyer to some degree. But... Running a business is a different equation. And you're right, those two things are, are important together. You know, one in isolation yeah. is, is not enough. Okay. Let's, um, let's go to our final topic so we can um, wrap it up for people. This is what I want this to be, very pragmatic, tips and tricks for junior mm-hmm. lawyers. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start off with two. So one of them, uh, always bring a pen and pad to a meeting. Maybe it's a laptop these days or an iPad or a Surface Pro or whatever. But always have something with you which you can take notes with. Because the amount of times you could go to a meeting, you have nothing, you just look like an idiot, just bring it. They'll oh, tell you yeah. if you don't need it, right? Like that's a good piece of advice. That is say. a fantastic piece of advice. That you, you have to take a pad wherever you go yep. or something to write on. Or take a pen and write on your arm, for God's sake. I mean, do a memento. Whatever you need to do. Whatever you need to do. But take <laughs> yeah. notes. Don't be above <laughs> taking notes. Are you a filmmaker, my child? <laughs> Niche memento references. Okay. Point number two, uh, I've just written proactivity. What I mean by that is um, if you find yourself with spare capacity, ask around for work. Don't be the person where they have to like, just, you know, squeeze the blood out of a stone. Just be proactive and helpful. Everyone loves someone who's proactive and helpful. And once you have the work to add to that, to riff with you, you know, think about once you've completed the task, where naturally this is going next. And and when you're providing your first draft of something, say, look, if, if you're happy with this, you know, I assume this is the next step. And seamlessly, you've gone to my next tip, which is I put rather obliquely chestnut checkers. Uh, and what I mean by that is, to your point, like they give you one task, think about what the next move is. Because if you can help, and I didn't do this, so I, I, I got feedback that I should do this. So this is uh, me owning uh, your mistakes. Owning I like my it, Mark. mistakes, yeah. And not being someone uh, practicing what he preaches. Um, but think about what the next step is. Uh, because chances are, if you think about that, you will leave a very good impression. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm so keen to help you, and, and I hope that I've, I've done this somewhat in this episode to, to try and tailor some of these things to, to law uh, and a career in law, but I can't help but think, you know, this is so true in life as well, and, right. and it's very true, particularly for us in the legal forecast, running a not-for-profit. You know, the, the, the best thing that we can hope for is that someone doesn't just you know, finish something that they're working on, leave it there and then never touch base with anyone else in the organization about what comes next. You know, we had these these wonderful individuals, Ben and Lawrence, big shout out to them. They won't mind. 
um, who you know today just emailed us out of the blue and said, guys, we've run all of these hackathon-esque events in the last year, and, and here is a stock take we've done without being asked to do it on everything that needs to be better this year and, and all of the additions and innovations that we can apply to this format of event that seems to be really popular amongst our audience. I was reading this email just thinking, this is, this is brilliant. Like the fact that they've just brought this to us, no one's asked for it. They're just, you know, they are passionate about it. They are owning it and have decided to go and do that is, is pretty special. So yes, not chess, but checkers, not even chess, but wizards chess. So, you know, be as proactive as you can and, I, and you'll obviously go far as a result of that. So. Yeah. And it, it's essentially a point around anticipation which feeds into one of my favorite Wayne Gretzky quotes, which is you kind of, you run to where the puck's going to be, not where uh, it is now. That's and so funny you say that because the very first document we prepared um, to, to pitch the legal forecast to our very first potential sponsor had that quote about, you know, really? heading where the puck is going yeah. with, with the premise being, you know, our organization would help, help the legal world to do that by giving people a, a place to think about the future. That's quite funny. That was unplanned. I That's, promise you. Well, I don't, I don't believe it. You're just an extremely good host. You've done every bit of research on me that you could have possibly Including done. Including confidential internal documents. <laughs> I love it. Call me if it's I love it. Um, any last, any final tips that you had? Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. We've said a lot of things. It might be too much. Hopefully it's somewhat helpful. Any kind of final remarks from you? As yeah, I, I think I would encourage people to be positive. I think I think it's a really I think it's a really exciting time to be in this world. And I and I really I mean we're having these debates right now in the legal forecast, looking at you know the future direction of our organisation. You know where where we were once tackling a very niche topic, which was the intersection of law and technology. That's now something that that is that is talked about in the mainstream, which we're very we're we're very happy about and proud of. And and more to the point. It's no longer a world where you just have to accept that that a traditional law career is is where you should go. I, there's so many so many alternatives available to that. Yeah. Obviously, you know it's it's um, it's no coincidence that, that that LOD is a supporter of legal forecast and that we're here doing this podcast. Right. Um, but but there are all kinds of um, opportunities out there for people beyond the traditional pathway. So I'd really encourage law students to. Think deeply, look beyond, you know, what is handed to them at first instance in a pamphlet um, and, and to just break free from all of these stereotypes about what a lawyer does and think more carefully about whether they can carve their own career in this increasingly, you know, crazy technology-driven world that, that is full of opportunity. So be positive. 2020, it's, yeah, you've got a lot to look forward to. Well, on that positive note, it just leaves me to say thanks so much for joining us. Melana, it's time for us to get a drink, I think. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. Pleasure. Nice.